Welcome to Two Pastors Take a Walk and Make a Podcast. This is Yolando, and as always, we're talking about what is astonishing us, what we're thinking about, and what we are preaching. And this week, every single thing that we say in the title of our podcast is a lie, because once again, we have not taken a walk, and there are not two of us, there are three of us. We have our first ever special guest um, Jess Patchett is here, and she is the pastor at Central Presbyterian Church in Atlanta, and long friend to both of us, and she's special guesting. So we're glad you're here, JP. Yay. Hey, guys! <laughs> I'm super honored to be the first ever special the very first. guest. The first, the show. maybe the last. That's a high bar. I better perform here. Better. Better. So... Hinton, what is astonishing you this week? Well, last week, it took me forever to write my sermon because I had the television on and I had one eye on my computer screen and the other eye on a PBS documentary series. It was all day on Saturday um, by uh, Professor Henry Gates, Skip Gates, Professor of African American Studies. It was the uh, series Many Rivers to Cross, uh, a history of African Americans, and it was so good. The last time I saw um, a documentary about African American history that good was back, what, late 80s, early 90s, uh, the Eyes on the Prize series. As a matter of fact, um, after I first saw that, I watched it every year for about 10 years and uh, got really familiar with it. But this, I, I think, is even better. It just um, looks at the, the the grand scope of specifically African-American history. And um, <laughs> I'm trying to write my sermon and uh, I'm watching this documentary. And so at times I'm I'm crying at other times. I'm super angry at other times. I just have to turn down the volume because it's so painful. Um, and I, I just I just couldn't stop watching it. So pair that with a few months before, um, he did another PBS documentary series, this time on African history specifically, uh, just looking at the history of the continent um, I think it's called Africa's Great Civilizations. And what is astonishing me is, is putting both of those documentaries together. Because uh, as uh, a, a young person and as you know an ad adult, uh, whenever I got, quote, Black history, it was basically beginning with slavery, ending with the Civil Rights Movement, which yeah. is powerful, um, uh, amazing! Uh, it, it it speaks of our you know re resilience and um, you know enduring struggle, but to connect it with African history, I just walking away from both of those together has given me um, much more uh, fight in these days. A sense of there's a, I remember there's. Um, um, uh, a, a quote from this woman uh, during the Montgomery 
boy, uh, boycott. Uh, I, I think she was a maid and, you know, she'd been walking for a week and someone interviewed her and said, you know, aren't you, aren't you, aren't you exhausted from all this walking you're doing? And she said, you know, uh, my feet are tired, but my soul is resting. Uh, there's something about these two documentaries together. So, you know what, I, in these days, I am exhausted. This American nightmare, this racist nightmare is so exhausting. But um, I, I feel a renewed energy. Um, when you look at the grand sweep of African and African-American history, it's like we have endured so much. We are here. We are here. And um, yeah, I'm, I'm just so encouraged and astonished by what we have endured and continue to endure in this country. Is that, I um, want to watch, and I think two things off the top of my head, like I just think it's so important that that, um, that these documentaries are made by you know, made by a black scholar, because I think just when you were talking about what you learn about black history in public schools in America, I mean, not only is it just truncated in terms of time span, but also is really whatever filtered through the white gaze. And so, you know, just being able to recover the parts of history that make white stakeholders so uncomfortable that they get not told is just really powerful. And the other thing that I think, I mean, that that is the same man, like I know about him because isn't he the man who was, the, they called the police on him for trying to come into his own house, like back at the beginning of the Obama oh, yeah, era. I think so, yep. Yes. He also does the um, Finding Your Roots show. Yeah. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So and, that, you know, as I've said before on this podcast, you know, I spend a lot of time on YouTube watching these um, young adults um, create these travel vlogs on the African continent. And uh, recently, a group of them got together in Accra, Ghana. And they said, Here, here's what we are attempting to do. We know that um, Africans in the diaspora, especially in Britain and America, have um, a cloudy, a distorted view of the content. They just do not understand what is happening here, who's here. You know, even African-Americans, when we travel to North America, they ask us, do you live in huts? Have you ever seen a lion? It's like, no, we live in the city. I have a, I have a condo on the fifth floor, right? Um, and so they're creating these vlogs to say, this is the real Africa. This is, this, is the, this is what's happening on the continent. And you need to know this or else you're just going to have this really distorted, um, unrealistic, small view of not only the continent, but of yourself. So what's astonishing you? Um, well, I, I am um, really grateful in these days for the ability to record and worship, even though we're apart. I keep reminding myself that I'm really grateful that this could be so much harder if it had happened 10 or 20 years ago and, you know, we had no way of being in relationship other than like 
putting a letter in the mail. So I'm grateful. I was gonna say literally that. phone it in. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I'm grateful, and and also, I mean, it is it is weary. I mean, it, it is difficult. I mean, the the good thing is because we all have this technology, you can reach out to anyone in the community and say, "Hey, could you lead this part of worship?" And that's really great. Um, really great and really valuable. And I see people um, taking risks and steps into leading worship in a way that if we were together in person, I know they wouldn't do. Um, but I, but people realize, I mean, A, having that um, barrier, like I'm doing it on my phone, so I know that I can re-record it, I can do it again. That is, that's helpful for folks. And I think people just really understand what is always true, um, but is just very um, apparent right now that they they do it they agree to do it not because they want to or because they feel comfortable mm-hmm. or because they feel equipped but they do it because they know how much it means to them to see people's faces on the screen that they know I mean and so they know that they want to step into leadership um, as a gift to other people in the community which I mean is how it should always be right mm-hmm. and so I really really appreciate that and last week um, we sort of stumbled into having um, children from the church record all the different um, parts of liturgy. And this week we had all of the youth, not all of them, obviously, but we, you know, all, all of it was done by youth. All of it was done by children. And I think um, really what I'm so grateful for, and I, I think it's just important to keep naming it and celebrating it because I don't think that it is, um, as normal as I, as typical as I think it should be. And I, and I think, um, but just, I'm, I'm really astonished and grateful to serve a congregation that takes worship so seriously that they um, celebrate kids and youth leading worship and that it, they have right expectations for the fact that a child is going to lead worship like a child a young person is going to lead worship like a young person and not um, insisting that there be some sort of like performative, like gloss. I mean, and so it's just, um, it's really beautiful and it's really powerful. And I think, I mean, I say a lot and I'm sure even on this podcast that, you know, I'm one of those rare people that I really did meet Jesus in the local church and it was, you know, a very sort of mundane hum, humdrum um, youth group, like no bells, no whistles, like that. This was just a church that it had invested in a past in a youth pastor for, you know, for the young people in the congregation, and one of whom, who happened to be the pastor's daughter, invited me in, and that was the context wherein that was the door to the community for me, the place where I could belong, and the context where I, I got to learn who Jesus was, and so I just really. Um, you know, I'm, I'm really grateful for that. And I'm grateful um, for churches and faith communities realizing that we need to um, find ways to make kids belong now, not someday, not when they grow up and also be okay that, you know, you, you belong before you believe and you, but you know, just the reality of that. So I, I haven't seen what the kids, what the youth have done for this week, but I mean, I, I feel like, you know, I know, I mean, I, I know youth. And so I, I know what it, it will be and, and, you know, what will be good about it and what will be 
you know, um, places for growth about it, but it's just so, it's so sacred. And I'm really grateful to be in a community. Again, it's not that people don't care about worship because they do deeply care, but that where people really understand that if we don't um, wrap young people around with this community and tell them who they are before they can understand it and continue to bear witness to who Jesus is before they can agree with it or buy into it, then, you know, then we're not do, we're not living out our, the fullness of our identity. And so I just, you know, it's just good to step back and go like, this is amazing that this is what we do. And it's amazing that, um, to be in a community that intuitively understands that and celebrates that. And I'm, and I'm really astonished by it. So that is what I'm Yeah. And I've worshiped uh, at the Grove uh, pre COVID and there, there is a, um, there's a a uniqueness there. I think it's for the very reason you're talking about that worship seems to be truly the work of the people. And I think you and I've said before on this podcast, how freeing that is for the preacher. I mean, we're not trying to be Mm -hmm. the star of the show. um, And it, it, it is, encouraging it's freeing for us to just enter into the preaching moment without having to do so many other things in in worship mm-hmm. not only that but it also gives worship a, a flavor a distinct flavor uh, to your congregation um, and I think any congregation that would have its people really engaged in worship and not um, as in so many congregations the audience right right I mean and I mean we talk about all the time when it comes to music that in our congregation what we're what what we're aiming for what what success or faith must looks like every week is not how the music sounds on the platform but how the congregation engages in the sanctuary right like huge right that's that's the standard and so if it sounds great on the platform and everyone is sitting there listening to it that's a pound fail like that is not i mean that's that we've just completely missed the boat and I, i mean in the same thing for the parts of worship that are not music. I mean, music, I mean, I think that's what is this strange thing about this time is thinking about how can we come back together as a community safely and you take music off the table. And it's not that music is essential for worship. It's just that music is this one place where it's so intuitively possible for everyone to create, co-create it together in real time. And so how do you find something else that's not music that allows everyone to co-create it together in real time, because that is, to me, like the the ultimate manifestation of of what worship is. And and so, but I mean, I remember we have a mutual friend um, serving in Atlanta, and, and I knew her way back in the day when we were all doing youth ministry. And I just remember her talking after a youth Sunday, and the senior pastor like called her into his office and was just reaming her out because the young people who had led didn't appear maybe serious enough or coached enough or prepared enough. And he was very, very angry that, you know, somehow the sanctity of worship had been degraded and how, you know, blah, blah, blah. And, and, and I just remember her and and she is not a crier, but I just remember her tearfully saying like, but I don't expect them to be perfect. I expect them to be growing. And I think so often in our congregations in worship, what we want is perfect and so we sacrifice growing. And so that just means the circle of people who we trust to lead worship just grows narrower and narrower and narrower because we have we have reduced worship to a product instead of a process whereby people come deeply 
um, alive in Christ and fuller into relationship with with one another. And that that doesn't happen if it's a performance. It, it has to be um, a reality, and there have to be there has to be real permission and welcome for people to enter into that um, activity at all stages of development. So, I wonder what it does to that question about how the music from the platform lands in the pews when the platform is YouTube and the pew is your couch, right? Like, because the temptation, even if, regardless of the quote unquote quality of sound or visual that's coming from the TV, the performative temptation and or reality just is exacerbated. And also the experience of worship on your couch, you know, alone or with two other people or three other people is so different. So, you know, does it mean like, okay, what is worshipful from your couch means, okay, you could get up and dance across the whole living room because there's no barrier in the pew yeah. in front of you. Or I don't know, like you sing it so loud, your neighbor hears you and you're being, <laughs> you know, caught in the spirit in that way. I'm not sure, but it'd be interesting to ask people how it's landing on their couches and then try to translate that back into the the worship leader's consciousness. Well, and what I hear is that, I mean, just from watching my own family, which I will say like my whole life as, I'm, as a, I've never worshiped with my family before this season ever, because I've always been seated in yeah. one space and my spouse or my kids have been in another space. And there's been a part of me that always felt like that was like a loss and a sacrifice that I was making unto the Lord. And now in this season, when I can worship with my family, I realized I was so wrong. Worshiping with my family is so detrimental to my familiar relationships and my relationship with the Lord. It's just whatever. I mean, and, that's and funny. Colin, like the very first Sunday after we worshiped at home, he looked at me because the kids were like, whatever. They were kids. It was awful. And and he looked at me and he's like, yeah, I'm not really sure if I should apologize to you or if you should apologize to me this moment. And I'm That's like, hilarious. I mean, fair. So I'm just like, but to your point, Jess, I think like what's hard is what we normally, if you're watching over a screen, what I normally do over a screen is not worship. What I normally do over a screen is passively receive. And so it's so difficult like it should be this opportunity to be even more you know alive and expressive and interaction interactive because there's no eyes of anybody really watching you but the reality is overcoming that that you know years long habit of just what do I do in front of the screen I zone out right mm-hmm. and so now when I it, like that's a really really hard thing to do and also I mean, I need whatever we're ridiculously in charge so we could fix this. But like, I I feel like there's no space in our rhythm of worship just to say to people like, Hey, I need you to do this. Like wherever you are, whatever that looks like, however, you know, beautifully or whatever, like, I just like, I need you to be engaged in this, that we're co-creating this together, even though we're not in the same space. And, and I know that that's really, because I mean, the ideal would be, yeah, we come back to worship more freed to be our authentic selves and, and expressive and whatever that looks like. But I fear um, that that's just a really hard thing to do. And I mean, I see people talking about it in virtual schooling too, that like, it's so hard for kids their whole lives. They, that, you know, sc- screen is what you use when you want to relax and when you just want to, and now all of a sudden 
we're saying to kids, now screen is the place where you need to engage and you need to absorb. And that's just a huge, like, I mean, I don't even know behavioral, just rewiring. It's really, it's really, really hard. So. Well, there's something too about that thing about being seen. I mean, that on the one hand, sure, sometimes being seen makes you self-conscious in a way that hampers your self-expression. But in another way, sometimes being seen is what draws something out of you. I mean, and it could be performative, but it also could be like this longing to be seen and to be known. And in a congregation, when we are seeing each other before God, it's like the people we're worshiping with are standing in for God seeing us because like in an incarnate way, people like are seeing us in the way that we want God to see us. And so if you're just sitting on your couch, you know, like you don't have that company of people who can actually like see your expressiveness like creativity is meant to be seen right and you it's this interaction this exchange of like we are worshiping God together and so my hallelujah prompts yours and yours prompts mine and when they're not you know visible that's a really hard thing but mostly I just think like I look at my kids and I'm like if Miss Diane was sitting right here you would not do that (laughs) like and if Miss Diane was sitting right here I would not do this and so what I really need is for people to be able to see us while we worship because this is not bringing out the best. Y'all can't see this, but Yolanda is grimacing and like shrinking back in his pew right now. Well, I'm, I, I am, I'm, I'm laughing um, because I, you, you guys sound like wonderful extroverts. Uh, for me, it's, it's the opposite, right? So, so when we're at home, there are Sunday mornings where I have to tell my wife to keep it down. I mean, she's just singing so, that's like, and then I feel, I feel bad. I was like, okay, I'm the pastor and I just (laughs) told you not to sing so loud. I mean, that's not right. That's wrong, uh, hon. I know that that's totally wrong. That is wrong. And so, you know, we've both taken Myers-Briggs. She's more of an introvert than I am, but there's, and, and even when we first got married and we're dating, she would every once in a while say, I'm going to such and such room in the house. She wouldn't say to pray, but to worship. And she would get like really loud. I'm like, this person who doesn't have two words to say in public, right? She just is super expressive. And so there, it, there's, a, there's a different dynamic. I've had people um, in our church family call email me say saying you're 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 more engaging on the screen I was like yeah because I don't I don't have the same butterflies that I have on a Sunday morning I when I stand up there and I look out at you I get super nervous when there's a camera in front of me if I mess I can re-record that thing and so I'm I'm a little more relaxed and I I Gosh, that's just so funny that how the exact opposite yeah. of that reality is for and me. Then, and then when I'm, I'm watching it, I, I feel more um, like the, I, I'm, I, I feel freer to cry. I feel freer. It's just a different. And if my child is <laughs> being a six-year-old, I'm like, okay, we're, we're, we're at home. It, like, no one is looking at us saying, okay, those are bad parents because they're letting their kid color or whatever during worship. So for us, it tends to be much freer than, (laughs) 
than having everyone's gaze on us. That's, I mean, and that's so interesting because the other thing that I really miss about this time is that, yeah, I mean, I, I appreciate that my kids can see us, you know, more authentically, but I, I really miss that they don't get the gift of watching and absorbing other people in the church and how they worship in, in such different and beautiful ways, right? I and agree. I miss yes. that they don't get sort of the Definitely. cornucopia of this is the all the breadth and span yes. of ways that, you know, the Holy Spirit moves people to yeah. worship it. So that is just such a, um, such a loss for them right now. Um, I mean, whatever, it's just yeah, a season. I think, yeah. I think my child thinks my parents are just weird and this is what they do. And <laughs> no one else's parents are this way. I mean, I'm really concerned about that. Like he's going to go out into the world thinking no one else does this. And I'm just going to dismiss it because my parents are just weird. No, he'll, he'll, he'll. And so he'll, we, we need the community. I'm, I'm not denying we need, and we want the community, but there's no, a I mean, dynamic for us. It's, it's great to get that perspective of thinking that for some people, this is a season of, I mean, I think for all of us, it it is a season of growth, even in ways that we are not aware of and won't be aware of for, for a long time. But I mean, it's just nice to know that for some people, this is, they're, they're enjoying it in ways that I am not. And like our feelings about things or the amount of pleasure we take in things, I mean, it's just not the indicator of what the Holy Spirit is doing. So absolutely, it's a good thing. Mm-hmm. Jessica, so, what's astonishing yeah. you? <laughs> Um, What's astonishing me in this season, I am astonished by the way that people are caring for each other. Mm. Um, So my church draws people from across the Atlanta metro area. So people drive in from lots of different sub corners and towns and cities, and they don't all um, work in the same place or live in the same neighborhood. Their kids don't go to the same schools. And so people in the church have a different um, level of knowing each other. You know, some people go back 40 years. Some people have been part of the church for 15 and know two other people. Um, And so in this season, even though we're mediated by the internet and by phone and snail mail and all that, um, I have found that people are more likely to be candid and forthcoming about what they're going through. And that then elicits a stronger caring response from other people in the church. And so I can't always share with everybody, like this is exactly what Kate told me that she's going through or Yolanda said she's going through. But if I share with the deacons, hey, you know, I was having this chat with Kate and she said that this is happening in her life. I can tell the deacons, hey, you know, somebody reach out to Kate. And the deacons since the beginning of the pandemic have created this massive calling campaign like they have matched you know like 80 people with other central callers just to check in and be like how you doing and they have created a card writing campaign where on milestone birthdays or anniversaries or like you know occasions of grief then they get a slew of cards from people who live in their geographic area or across the church they created like a flower delivery ministry where people who love to assemble flowers and um, deliver flowers do. And sometimes it's literally just because, and sometimes it's on occasions that have no hallmark relevance. Like they might have a tip that someone lost a job or, I mean, you can't really, there's no card for that. Right. 
and that's not something people love to talk about, but in this season that's happening um, for a lot of people. And I think, um, you know, again, like mental health crises, there's no card for that. There's no card for like, Hey, I'm struggling with depression. Like there's no card that says, I'm really sorry that, you know, this is a hard mental health time for you, but the church is finding ways to express care and support in those kinds of moments. And what I hope is that, as you all said about worship, that translates beyond this season. Because, you know, um, I think a lot of us, as Michelle Obama said, are struggling with mental health challenges that we may not have ever faced to this degree before. And in a lot of circles, like that's not something you talk about. It's not something you admit. It's not something you get help for in in a public way, like in a community way. And, you know, I was introduced to a school of thought many years ago that said that, like, yes, therapy is important. Um, Psychiatric intervention is important for many things. But sometimes what helps us um, get through traumatic times and then be resilient and recover from them and come through them in an important way, something that is an effective intervention is simply friendship Mm -hmm. and community care. Mm-hmm. And if we're holding things close to the vest and we only tell a therapist or God forbid, tell no one at all, like we are, we are holding ourselves back or are held back by our disease from getting that help and getting that care and getting that love. And so I'm astonished by the people who've had the courage and the motivation or even just the desperation to say like, this is really hard and I need help. And the people who've come and with sensitivity and often saying like me too, right? And then enter into mutually helpful relationships that often would not have developed for any reason before this time. Yeah, I mean, I thinking about that. There's a podcast, The Liturgist, which I mean, it's not as big of a deal as ours, but I mean, it's out there. <laughs> Might heard of it? Um, and I just remember listening to them, and they were interviewing um, a psychiatrist. And, and this person was saying, look, obviously I am in the professional mental health care field. I believe in it. I understand what we have to, to offer and to value. But she was saying like for, for millennia, for generations, people were able to achieve mental wellness without this sort of classic Western civilization inspired discipline. And, and in many ways, this um, psychiatrist was saying a lot of what mental health care professionals do is fill in the gap for people who don't have a community, like they don't have, and that communities have had ways. And I would say like spirit mediated ways to, to intervene in one another, to hold one another up, to bear what is unbearable, and and I think as as Christians, like there's there's obviously a, just a, a wealth of ritual and knowledge and relational expectations that if we really live into them in a spirit mediated way, you know, God can do incredible things. And that to me is so um, just inspiring and hopeful because you know psychiatry is something that you know only a segment of a segment of a segment mm. of humans will ever have access to. So I'm super glad that it's there, and I'm super glad that more people are getting access. And I'm very glad that people are getting more um, brave and vulnerable about sharing that need. But it's also just really helpful to say people who don't have access are not bereft. Like there are, 
um, you know, there are ways that we can bear one another up. And, and I mean, that's the scripture, like um, bear, bear one another's burdens, right? And I think in this understanding, like in this time, there's a recovery of who we've been meant to be all along. And I do think, especially as like Americans, there's this reticence of like, oh, you don't want to get in people's business. You don't want to insert yourself in a place, especially, you know, most adults we talk a lot about, you know, don't have friends. Like they have friends maybe that are are friends they used to have in high school or college. And then once you get behind that, beyond that point, often, you know, relationships with people become very transactional. Um, and, and so, you know, the idea that that was never how we were created to live and that our faith communities can be places where we reconnect with you know, really foundational wisdom and practice that that leads to a more holistic life because it's not always, you know, growing in our relationship with God will inherently grow and make healthy and holy relationships with other people. Like there's just interconnectedness there. So yeah, I I do hope that. And I think that's probably something even to name constantly in this season to mm-hmm. people like we we don't have any choice about going through this season so we better be really intentional about looking for where god is and carrying every good thing out of this season so that the pain isn't wasted um mm. that is really cool mm. wow <laughs> that reminds me of a um, a segment in um in dr gates documentary there's a there were times when um uh, a slave had been sold. And uh, when they were coming to take that person away, all of the other slaves would come out and they would sing wow. as this person was being taken. And uh, they would sing songs to this person. They would sing songs to God. They would sing songs about sing them on the other side, sing them again. Um, and it was just a really powerful um, piece of the documentary, but it does remind you how important the community is when you're going through pain and trauma, especially um, a, a season or an event that you don't have control over, and how healing and um, uh, sustaining that can be. Well, it's holy. I mean, like God yeah. is present in that. I mean, that reminds me of two things. One is, did you see that our friend Laura Everett yesterday posted um, a, just a really beautiful poem um, in response to 9-11 that was really focused on um, the, the people who died in the restaurant at the top of one of the towers and just really highlighting the international um, identities mm. of people, which is not normally what we highlight on that day when we're seeking unity at all costs. And... Um, the last line, the last couplet, um, it was talking a lot about how like music was playing in the kitchen and just the, um, and then in the last couplet, the, the poet shifts attention to people in Afghanistan who, and mm-hmm. just sort of naming that, you know, that destruction unleashed other destruction mm-hmm. of, uh, of other innocent lives that are just as valuable, which is again, not a part of the story that we like to look at or tell. And then the last couplet is this exchange between really like the spirits of the dead in Afghanistan and the uh-huh. spirits of those who died on the, the top of the world trade and, and the, the Afghanis say like, we, you know, we'll, we have no music. Will you teach us to dance? And the spirits of 
the Americans who died, you're just saying like, well, music is all we have left. I mean, just that idea. And that's so real. I mean, one of the reasons that it's uh, our funeral um, rituals are such a gift is there's something indescribably holy and healing and um, strengthening about greeting death with song and, mm. and what that embodies. Um, and your story really makes me think, you know, I'm from Kentucky and last week there was, a, um, I'm from Louisville and last week they ran the Derby lately and there were, people were super angry, some people, white people. But so the song of the state of Kentucky is My Old Kentucky Home by mm. Stephen which growing up, I knew nothing about, but the, um, but the word, I mean, I knew the words, I know the tune and it is, a. I mean, it is a aesthetically beautiful song, but I did not know the history of the song. And so like many other people from Kentucky and, and there's, I mean, and that's actually, let me just stop and not gloss over the fact that it's extraordinary that I grew up um, in choirs. I sang that song and no, I, ne- I never thought to ask the question and certainly no one ever thought to tell me do you know what this song is really about? This song is written in the voice, written by a white man in the voice of an enslaved man um, mourning that his life in slavery in Kentucky is better than it would be down the river. And he's about to be sold. And he's, I mean, you know, it's just this incredible pathos. And then like the custom for white people is just to like, put on a fancy hat and heels and lift a mint julep cloud. You know, it's just like heartbreaking to say that like what that song, what Stephen Foster has really done in that song is probably seeing some of the rituals that Professor Gates has named in this documentary and then turned it into like, just stripped it of its um, reality and pathos and turned it. And, you know, so people are really angry because Churchill Downs, which is the track, um, didn't didn't play the song this year because you know Kentucky is understandably Louisville is understandably on fire because of it's not on fire I'm sorry let me not exaggerate it's not on fire at all <laughs> metaphorically the city is on fire because of what happened to Brianna Taylor when she was murdered by Louisville Metro police officers who still have not been arrested or charged and so um they didn't sing that song. And so then I'm watching on social media friends or acquaintances of mine who just really enjoy like the pageantry, like the Derby is a big deal for rich white people in Louisville. Let me just tell you, the Derby is not as big of a deal for non-rich people in Louisville, most of whom happen to be non-white. And so like, they're just so offended that like, how can you not sing this song? I'm so like Churchill Downs, I'm never coming back again. First of all, gross second of all i mean also i just call your bluff like of course you'll be back here next year with your mental lips and your big hat i mean like whatever but also i'm like yeah am i happy that we would stop singing that song as you know some sort of yes i'm so happy i'm so happy that we would look at the history of the song and be like you know what i don't want to lift a mint julep glass and sing a song written by a white man about like the very real tragedy of life and enslaved in, in slavery in this country. And ironically, it's the very people who are saying, I don't want to erase history, who refuse to know the real story behind that song and refuse to really, I mean, it doesn't take some kind of creative, imaginative genius to understand 
the brutality and evil in that song, it you know if you if you wanted to know and look at that history, you would immediately see it. But if what you are intent on doing is burying that history and saying it didn't matter while it was happening and it really really doesn't matter now these generations later, then yeah, you're just going to be mad that you're not going to sing this song. But to me, it would be like it would be like taking that song that the poet wrote about the people dying at the top of the World Trade Center and in a generation putting it to polka music and just singing it like while you had a bonfire in your neighborhood for a good time. Like it's, it's offensive. Like this is real. These are real people's trauma and death and loss and the very least, the literal very least that we could do would be to have some reverence around it as we remember it and not turn it into a Camp Town Racist song. What it means to be a white American is understanding not only what Professor Gates is illuminating about this is the real history, but then understanding the story of Stephen Foster coming along and literally whitewashing and, you know, stripping the history. And then under, I mean, like just, we have, we have to have a reckoning with like, no, I'm not Irish. I'm not German. I'm not, I am an American. I am a white American. And I have to live with the history of what people like me have done, not 400 years ago, um, not 200 years ago, not 60 years ago, but also right now. I mean, uh, yes to all those other eras, but also right now. And that should be fairly easy for American Christians because week, week in and week out, we deal with texts that are 2,000, 3,000 years old. So we know how to deal with these grand sweeps of history. Something that's, you know, 100 years old should not be that difficult for us. Well, and also it should not be hard for us as Christians, as we say all the time, because the, the entry move to our identity as a Christian is saying, I like, I am a sinner and I am caught in a web of sin. I am not intrinsically like righteous on my own merit and I need atonement with God. And so then to discover what to discover in air quotes, your history of just like deep brutality and indifference and violence and, you know, that you're part of that story. I mean, that's not supposed to be new news for, for Christians, A, just understanding what it means to come to faith in Jesus Christ. But B, I mean, we have the witness of the entire Hebrew scripture, which bears witness to two realities. One is that the people of Israel are chosen and like God delights in them and God will never forsake them. And also like the people of Israel were not doing PR. Like they told the whole real story about not only just the ways that they were victims, but also the ways that they were victimizers. And so again, like for, for, I understand if you're not a Christian, if you're just a white American and all you know about yourself is what you learned in fifth grade social studies, like this is going to be a hard pill to swallow. But if you take, I mean, the Bible and theology seriously, then this is just like, oh yeah, I guess this is about me after all. Like maybe I came into this life thinking like, oh yeah, I don't really, really need a savior, but I'm just kind of along for the perks. But you get into it deeper and are like, oh wow, I I do, I do. And, and knowing that about myself doesn't mean that I have to think like, okay, now I'm worthless and valueless and I don't deserve love or belonging. Right. No, because the witness of it is, 
this, even in your status as an unredeemed one, you were still had ultimate worth in the eyes of God, who, whatever, Philippians, like left the realm of heaven to come down and live among us and, you know, bear, anyway, whatever. I, I just, it's sad to me um, that we aren't leading the way as Christians in general, and as white Christians in particular, that we're not leading the way for other white people in terms of reckoning with um, and reconciling with this history. And of course, we're not. And who did Barna just do a study that said that white Christians are like two times more likely to be racist than non-Christian whites. So it's just devastating. Well, and that's another part of the reckoning we need to have. It's it's how uh, white Christians have been complicit with uh, racism. And um, that is just a fact, which leads me to what I'm thinking about, if that's okay to transition. No, it is. I was just wondering, like, we've been on, we've been doing this for a long time. Do we have time for thinkings about, maybe we can just do thinkings about well, and it. I, and I think I've mentioned this before, I can't remember, but it's just still on my mind. You know, for many years, I have self-identified when people have asked me, you know, about my theological leanings, I would say something like, I am reformed, I am charismatic, and I am evangelical. I just held uh, those three things together. And in this season, it has just become crystal clear that I need to drop evangelical um, out of that list simply because it is so tainted. It has become, it's, it's, it's come to mean white, conservative, and I will add racist. Um, I listened to a podcast recently of a black Southern Baptist pastor. And he said, you know, we, we, we've kind of been duped. He said, when I, when I became a pastor and, um, you know, I was, I was almost recruited by the Southern Baptist uh, and uh, they they wanted me. They wanted someone like me. And there was a group. There was a sincere group of folks saying, you know, we're working on things. We're trying to change, and we we need people like you. And mm-hmm. so he listened to them. Planted this church, I believe, in Atlanta, and it it's flourishing. And he said uh, recently in this season, uh, he's noticed that he's looking around the Southern Baptist Convention and they are pro-Trump, not talking about racism. Let's talk about pro-police, yes. And he's like, oh, we really don't belong here. And so I do believe in the biblical idea of, of evangelical that is, one who brings gospel. the good news. That's yeah. right. But in terms of how most Americans understand the word evangelical, I am not that. I I am dropping that from my list of 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 ways that I self-identify. I am no longer an evangelical. Right, because I think too many people would use like your commitment to the biblical imperative to share the treasure that we have from God and they would use your using that word then as, as cover 
you know, to say like, oh, see, there's nothing wrong with evangelical culture because look, here's a black man who identifies as evangelical. And so, and I've noticed that those folks will talk with me about racial reconciliation. Love to talk about how the blood of Jesus makes his family. Okay, yes, and I say amen. But I noticed that as soon as I say the word justice, they're like, peace out, mm-hmm. right? That That is the dividing line. I'm like, at some point, reconciliation means doing something about justice, about injustice. I'm and- sorry, if your family and some of your family is being shot in the streets, you care. It's not and if that you're not hard. not family, it's then not. you maybe don't care. But, <laughs> but, the, but the message they are getting, the, the, the evangelical environment, the evangelical bubble says, if you start talking about justice, what's going to come with that is some um, progressive liberal, um, anti-Christian, heretical teaching that's going to lead you away from Jesus. So don't go down the justice road or else you'll find yourself no longer Christian because that's what's happened to the PCUSA. That's what's happened to the Episcopal, right? That, That is the thinking in that bubble. Yeah, I mean, I do, I do think it's incredible, and I think you're absolutely right. And we've we've talked about it before, like specifically, like evangelical preachers saying justice is only about God's divine, you know, God's judgment, wrath. and it yes. has nothing to do with human interactions. And God is indifferent to those, and and there's no. Um, there's no expectation on God's part that we would seek justice in the world. We're just supposed to ride it out in our lifeboats as best we can until God, you know, comes and, and, you know, destroys everything, which I mean, when you make God in your own image, then yes, that's exactly. And and if your lifeboat is a yacht, well, of course you just ride it out. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. No, I appreciate that. Well, what I wanted to share what I've been thinking in it, I mean, it's related. So I, this Sunday we're preaching on Acts 8, the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, <laughs> Shilando is, I love I that love, people can't I love. see the way. What people can't see and we'll never, we will never like release the video, but oftentimes Yolando does these like cheerleader moves with his arms. <laughs> like when he gets really excited, he's like pumping. So Yolando is a huge fan of, of the story of the Ethiopian eunuch. It's really, it's really cute. Um, so like when he's excited and he makes a verbal noise, he says things like, ooh la la. But when he's excited beyond words, it's just, yeah, it's really, really sweet. I should have um, been a cheerleader in college, by the way. I should. You I mean, think? Anyway, yeah, I you think so. You can think that. That's okay. Um, I think I anyway, been good. I've been thinking a lot. I mean, sometimes there's there's things that you, you are like wrestling with when you're preparing a sermon. And then just when it's time to actually preach, you just can't, you can't put it in. It just doesn't fit. I mean, and like my sermon this year, this week was 29 minutes. So like, I think anyone can appreciate that. Like, I would like people to know, I actually had even more things that I thought were essential to say. And even I was like, okay, uh, this won't work. Um, but so I was looked like in that passage, when Philip comes up to the Ethiopian eunuch, he is reading a passage from 
Isaiah, and um, it is 53, 7 and 8, and I am going to read it because I'm not Baptist and I don't have it memorized, but, um, you know, it's about the Messiah. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter as a sheep before her shearers is silent. So he did not open his mouth by oppression and judgment. He was taken away and who can speak of his descendants for he was cut off from the land of the living um, for the transgression of my people. He was stricken. And I, and um, it just really struck me this week, especially because we have um, just a really um, beloved member of our community whose family um, was um, just devastated by um, gun violence this week. And for that, like visceral and and lots of other realities of what we're watching this summer, like it just makes me read those verses in a different way. I think that I've always... I mean, you and I, Yolanda, have had lots of conversations about like substitutionary atonement and, you know, and actually trying to sort of theologically or doctrinally understand what, what is happening on the cross that is, that is salvific. And, and I think like trying to understand that is, is fine. It's good and it's holy. And also it's just, you know, ineffable. Um, but I, I've always understood this passage and, you know, I, and I have always understood it in whatever, as best I can, in a very metaphysical way that like, this is something really, um, something happened, you know, supernaturally, spiritually in that moment wherein sin was, I don't, I mean, whatever, atoned for, emptied of its power, whatever. And, and just really, I, I mean, I've understood, I've, I've, I've sort of struggled with it. I've long understood the argument of like, Jesus was innocent and, and God needed to put the sins of the world on someone. And so God put those sins on Jesus. Like this is sort of classic substitutionary atonement theology. And, and I, and what I realized this week as I was thinking about what has happened um, in my community and in my church and, and just seeing how really innocent people end up suffering and dying, not for their own sins, but because the sins of the world get focused on their flesh and realizing like another really, I mean, maybe not instead of, maybe not instead of, it's okay if it's a both and, but a really important thing for me to understand about Jesus on the cross is that like, it's not God, I don't think, who put the sins of humanity on Jesus's flesh. I mean, it's human sin breaking the flesh of Jesus, i.e., you know, these systems like this religious system that says, you know, that, that understands and maybe even authentically believes that it's there to um, you know, glorify God and reveal truth about God. And then when one comes into its midst, showing that that some of the truth is a lie, instead of rejoicing and saying like, oh, we're here for the truth of God. So let me joyfully embrace this new thing and leave behind the old thing that that religious system says, you know, no, I need to destroy, I need to destroy the one who carries this truth because um, the truth is not as attractive to me as the power and status that I have as the one who holds truth and distributes it on behalf of the community. And in the same, you know, in the secular system of 
Rome and empire in general, where basically the, the empire says, and maybe even authentically believes that we, we exist to bring prosperity and peace and justice to the land. And then when one comes into your midst, you know, and, and all of a sudden the, the truth about the truth about how, how limited and, um, and not real that is i mean like jesus and is totally innocent and and everyone knows he's totally innocent and pilot the one who can make a different choice knows that he's totally innocent but in that moment you know the choice is the system over the realities that the system ostensibly exists to um to, to distribute and so pilot says like yeah I, i'm i'm washing my hands of this like and and so this idea that like you know, in that moment, like, why does Jesus die? I mean, is it God up there doing some sort of like, like, um, abacus transfer, like send from here for the, no, it's human. Like we're doing that. Like we are the fruit of our sinfulness is being, uh, is, is falling down on the, on the body of this innocent one. And, and I mean, and it's ever thus, right? Like, as you look at people in our community, and that's what I think is so egregious about every time somebody dies, especially if that person is, you know, black or brown, like what, what we look for is a way to say like, no, 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 your sins caused this to happen. Right. But the central truth of the Christian tradition is that no, Jesus did not die because of his own sins. He died because of the sins of the people and the nation and the world. And I think we've, I've always just been taught to understand that as some sort of like metaphysical thing that God did instead of to recognize you know, the systems and the powers and the principalities in the world to be like, that's not a metaphor. That's actually what happened. And that's actually what continues to happen, that the people who, who die um, and whose bodies and lives are destroyed, are, I mean, is there sometimes an element of personal responsibility around the way? I mean, sure, but mostly the people who die are the people whose bodies absorb all the sin and evil and injustice of the systems that the rest of us cling to because we know like it shouldn't be this way, but we are too afraid to imagine an alternative whereby this, you know, maybe there'll be a new system that's more destructive to me. So I'm just going to hold on to this one because it's most destructive to you. Anyway, so that's what I just like all week, I've been thinking about those verses and just thinking about how we just see them played out over and over and over again in our communities that, um, that the most powerless and innocent people, their bodies continue to be broken and destroyed because of the sins of, of the, of the people. So that's what I'm thinking about. Yeah. I would just quickly add, um, first of all, yes, I think it's really good. Um, and, um, our theology of the Trinity really helps me, um, with a lot of this because I think, multiple things are happening on the cross. Um, yeah. if, if Jesus is fully God and fully human, then as fully God, there's some sense in which he is, he is choosing, he is allowing, he is willfully taking on receiving the sin of the world. Um, and, um, the, the pain that, um, of, of the cross but as fully human, something is happening to him. Um, and that, that really helps me um, because well, I, I think, go ahead. 
Well, I was going to say, like, I, I just, I think, yeah, it's really important to say this is a, you know, it's not to say like, now we need to think about it this way instead of that way. Right. Like yes. I do still like my hope. That's where I was going. Yes. Right. Like my hope is in the reality that I believe, I don't understand, but I believe that something ontologically shifted in that moment. But I don't think as so often as Christians, I mean, and to the point of the conversation we have earlier about like what evangelical Christianity has become in America, it didn't shift so that we could just blindly continue in the same patterns and go like, oh, they don't matter anymore because Jesus died on the cross. And so now, I mean, like I, one of the things is that that cro- the moment of the crucifixion and the empty tomb and resurrection were supposed to be a moment of revelation for us to say, now we understand you know, what sin is. And now we understand that we need to conform to this other way of being and renew our mind in Christ. And I think, you know, obviously what we often have done is, you know, allowed the revelation of Jesus to be co-opted by the very systems that he came to disrupt and just sort of do a cheap grace kind of thing and say like, no, 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 something changed on the cross. So now you know, the destruction and the slaughter of these innocent people and the injustice of innocent, that doesn't matter anymore. It's not real anymore because the cross changed everything, which I think is, you know, when you are talking to evangelical pastors and saying like, let's talk about justice. And they're saying like, no, we don't talk about that because that'll lead us away from Jesus. And just said like, okay, then you don't see the cross. Um, You just, you know. And, and it highlights the genius of someone like, um, a James Cone in his book, The yep. Cross and the Lynching Tree, right? So if, if you if you can't see how those things connect, then you're not fully seeing the cross. And I mean, the other thing that's so tragic about that is I think even in our um, theological institutions, and I mean, the three of us have been so privileged to be able to, you know, stop our lives for three plus years and just sit around and look at the richness. But I mean, we, we've talked before about like the cross and the lynching tree is quote marketed as like black theology instead of like, no, no, this is theology. theology. And if anything, it's American theology. And as important as it is for black Americans to, to understand this, I, I would argue it's even more essential for white Americans to understand. I mean, and so that, that's the, it's not that the truth isn't being, isn't being told. It's just that we're, we're paying more attention to the established powers and systems, you know, and looking for them to filter through the, the truth of Jesus that we're willing to receive instead of taking the cross seriously and going like, I mean, whatever, this is not, I mean, it's so unoriginal to be trite, but like Jesus wasn't crucified because he was just so nice that nobody could stand it. Right. Like this is, you know, so when, when people are like, you know, how can loving Jesus lead you out into the streets to be protesting against the police? We should be in support of all of these law and order systems and be like, okay, but, but (laughs) Jesus was crucified by these law and order systems. So like, maybe you should be on the streets, maybe you shouldn't be on the streets, but like to just dismiss it out of hand and say like, there's never any reason for Christians to to be involved in disrupting a system means that you're just not even taking seriously the very story that's at the heart of our identity. I love how much you've said to me over the years, how much you don't like theology. I don't like theology. <laughs> and, and yet you are super theological. I'm like, this is the same person who says, oh, I don't like theology. I don't like theology. 
Let me lay on you some heavy theology right now. Back in the day when we could take walks, you'd be like, well, the doctrine of it. I'm like, shut up. I don't care about the doctrine of anything. Let's just talk about the Bible. It's true. It's true. Jessica, what are you thinking about? What are you preaching? All right. So I want to pick up a thread here, take it a little bit different direction. So you guys talked a lot about these um, systems. No, we just talked a lot. That's (laughs) (laughs) no, go ahead. I'm sorry. <laughs> the, the rule of this podcast is you say whatever's on the top of your head. <laughs> That's right. Go ahead. I'm sorry. You've been talking a lot about the systems that sort of eat us alive and what we do when we become conscious that um, they need interrupting, right? So I'm preaching on um, the Zacchaeus passage where, you know, Zacchaeus is up in a sycamore tree and you know, the Lord he wanted to see and all that. Sing the song later. Um <laughs> And, you know, I've been thinking about the fact, you know, Zacchaeus was the guy with the yacht, you know what I mean? Like he's the guy with the yacht riding out the storm. Okay. And I could go into a lot of biblical history about why I think this story is actually way more grown up adult and matters more than we have made it. Mm -hmm. Um, But the point is really for this conversation, I'm thinking a lot about the social distance that we call sectarianism right now. Mm. So like there's a social distance I want to respect and obey when we put masks on and like stand six feet away and doting in, in restaurants, like that's really important for our health. But there's another kind of social distance that's destroying our country right now. And it's called sectarianism. And what that does is essentially lead us in an escalating series of ways of thinking and talking about each other that grows more violent the more we let it get out of Mm -hmm. hand and the more that we let that distance fester. So when we look at each other and we say like, I'm right and you're wrong, then it can become very easily, I'm right. And not only are you wrong, like you're you're just not even human. Like I can't even understand how you're a human being. And then it can very easily become like, I'm right. And because you're not human and you're like, I don't know what you are, you're not deserving of basic rights and dignity. You're a threat. And then it becomes you're an enemy and it becomes your demonic, right? Mm-hmm. And the, the more we escalate up, because we know this is escalating. Because like, if I pinch you, you're going to hit me. And if you hit me, then I'm going to like punch you. And if you punch me, then I'm going to shoot you. And then, yeah. I mean, this is how that works, whether it's verbally or physical. And I really think we're, we're reaching a fever pitch in this country that's really dangerous. I was listening to an interview with a guy named Patrick Otuma, and he was um, working for the last five years in the northern of Ireland, is what he calls it, to break down this dichotomy of, is it the north of Ireland or northern Ireland? Ireland, Like, he's like, word, words matter. Anyway, he saw, he grew up in a country where sectarian violence had reached this fever pitch, and, you know, kids were killing each other in the streets, and, and he has this amazing poem where he talks about, when I was a kid, I learned to count. One, two, three, four, five. But as I grew up, I was I began counting lives. And so then I learned how to count one life, one life, one life, yeah. one life, one life, because that was the first time that each life had been taken. And he said, you know, um, it stops growth and maturity and prosperity and the, the life just stops when it becomes one life, one life, one life. And I feel like that's where we are in this country in many ways is beginning to count like that. And so the question then, of course, is how do you interrupt such an escalating, violent, you know, sort of um, trajectory? 
And he, and I think the gospel says, you know, you have to rehumanize people that you once saw as enemies. And I think that's what's happening in the Zacchaeus story. Jesus comes into town and the crowds come out to see him and they're at the gate and like, he doesn't stop. Jesus doesn't stop for the crowds. And they're like, what the heck? Like we came out to see you and Jesus walks on and Jesus goes and stand underneath the sycamore tree. Whereas Zacchaeus is up in the top, kind of sitting at this cool distance from the rest of the crowds. And Zacchaeus, you know, you know, is beckoned down by Jesus, like, you know, come down because I'm coming to eat at your house today. And the crowds are completely ticked. Right. Like they're like, how could you possibly eat with this sinner, this enemy, this demonic person who's stolen things from us, right? And Jesus says, you know, what'd you come out to see? Like, what did you think I was here to do? You know, and Luther says like, you know, Jesus didn't like hang out with just his friends because if he had done that, then we would, where would we be? No one would be saved. The place as Bonhoeffer said uh, for Christians is among our enemies because the call of Christ and the call of Christians is to reconcile people who had been enemies of God to God and to God's people. And so I've been thinking a lot about the call of Christian right now, and it's really tempting in a time like this for me to want to sit among the lilies and my friends and seek refuge. And that's a good thing. And I need that, but that's not the only place I'm meant to be. And that's not the only place and people with whom God calls me. And that's a really challenging word for me right now. Well, and I think like, it's so great that like you have that story and then you have like the teaching and, um, Ephesians about like, look, it's not flesh and blood. And I feel like people who are often victimized by these powers and principalities and systems, like the one thing you have left to cling to is your righteousness. And so then like what you want to say is like, you might have the power to steal from me, to kill me in the streets, but I have the power to know that I'm righteous and you're not. And, and so that means then I don't need to reconcile. I find you worthless. Like you see me as a threat. I see you as a threat. And so for, you know, in that Zacchaeus story for Jesus to be able to say with his body, like the difference between this group of people and this man is just, you know, which part of the system they're, Mm -hmm. they're absorbed in, Mm -hmm. but there's not a difference in moral worthiness. And I want to say one more thing about this story, right? Because Zacchaeus, when Jesus calls him down, like offers reparations. Yeah. He offers back like half of everything to the poor and four times what he stole to those he stole it from. He makes these enormous gestures. And it's in that moment that I think we should remember what Zacchaeus means. The name Zacchaeus means innocent or pure or righteous. Yeah. And so then everybody's like, what's happening here? And the point is to ask the question, will the crowds welcome this man back in? And Jesus says, you know what? He is a son of Abraham too, i.e. righteous and pure Mm -hmm. and innocent and reconciled to God. And salvation came to his house. salvation came to this house. And you were here to see me bring salvation to the people. And will you welcome it? Right. And I, yeah, I mean, I do think, again, like as we should be able to understand things in terms of like justice by looking at our own story, we ought to be able to understand by looking at our own story, how we respond to sectarianism is to say, you can, you can tell the truth about a system as Jesus always did without demonizing the people who are caught up in it, right? Mm -hmm. Like without feeling like you're a different kind of human than Mm -hmm. they are. And that's something that, you know, we allow the world to teach us 
about how to interact with others instead of allowing Jesus to teach us. I mean, it's not that we have to pretend that people aren't our enemies when they are, but they are our enemies. It's just that we have this move that we make to be disruptors of the cycle and to absorb the violence instead of mm-hmm. passing it on. And that is something that, again, like this should be Christianity 101, mm-hmm. but it's not because, you know, many, many Christians have been trying to build institutions for God instead of trying to be the people that God has called us to be. And like that, we were looking at the end of that Ephesians talking about this, this idea of like stand like this, what I want you to do in the day, in the evil day is to stand. Like, don't, I'm not calling you to fix it or, you know, overwhelm your enemies or like just stand and your weapon is who you are, not what you do. And we're just trying to do stuff all the time instead of being the people that God is calling us to be and letting God be God. But it is Christianity 101 because Jesus taught us to pray yeah. and God prepares the table before us in the presence of our enemies. The right. Psalm. I mean, like all of, all of this is basic right? and we're bid come and sit and receive the gift. Yeah. I mean, it's not, none of it is hidden. It's just what we've hidden our eyes to. I mean, and this is the same thing about our own history in America. Like not, nothing of this is, is hidden. It's just what some of us who have benefited by all of the systems have hidden our own eyes to. It's not, it's not buried. It wasn't a secret. It never was. And the same with the gospel, which is, you know, a double-edged sword. So. <laughs> yeah. I, if I were preaching that Zacchaeus text, one of the things that um, came to my mind is the uh, song from the civil rights movement, We Shall Overcome. Mm-hmm. That song is so interesting to me because of the we and the overcome, right? The the overcome is not overcome you. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not, now we're going to get power over you so that we can do to you what you did to us. It, it's overcome this, this system. And the we is all of us. So that the, the people singing that song are are looking around, um, saying, "Our freedom <laughs> means your freedom. Mm-hmm. Our release from this system means your. We we see that you are caught up in. You may not see it, but you're caught mm-hmm. up in it as well. Um, and it just makes me think of that song. Well, and it's yeah. another instance of people of faith meeting death with a song, right? Like yeah. this is yeah. our response yeah. is not to meet death with death, but to meet death with truth and the song. And, and this has been a very long podcast and we need to stop talking now. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good ending though. I mean, that's pretty much how it ends every week. I was going to say, that's pretty much our usual ending. Yeah. Um, So if you want to find out more about Derida, um, where Yolando serves, D-E-R-I-T-A, he's doing his cheerleader arms too. (laughs) But in spite of that, if you want to check out this church, um, you should Google Derrida Presbyterian Church in Charlotte, North Carolina, and it will pop you right over to their website. And you should listen to Yolando's messages, which are on the Podbean website under Derrida Church Podcast. And you should go to YouTube and watch their services on the Derrida Church YouTube channel. And you can see this man so happy that he looks like a total goo. It's ridiculous. <laughs> um, Jessica serves at Central Presbyterian Church in Hotlanta. So you can Google that and go over to their website. And I'm sure that you can look on YouTube at the Central Pres Atlanta channel and see 
uh, worship with them. And I'm sure you have your sermons podcasted yep. somewhere too, yep. which is on what iTunes. platform? iTunes any and them, yeah. Central Press podcast. Yep. Did she and say? Did she out, say any of them? Any of them? She did. She's oh. big time. Big, big, big time. Big, huge, huge. I do know they're on iTunes and our website. It's she's like, we're, we're everywhere. We're everywhere. Whatever. We're everywhere. Whatever. 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 We're like Visa. <laughs> if you want to know more about the Grove, you can, and we only, do. You can only go to thegrovecharlotte.org. <laughs> you can look for our um, sermon podcast, which is only on iTunes. <laughs> she's exclusive. This is exclusive That's material right. right here. And what else? Oh, you could worship with us on Facebook live stream at 10 oh o'clock tomorrow at the Grove Church, Charlotte. And for now, because then Facebook's going to make us not put music on there anymore yeah, and it's yeah. all going to change. Don't whatever. That, anyway, don't know, Yolanda, don't sorry, you're not on Facebook anyway. Don't even worry about it. Um, so, all right. We'll talk about that later. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.